Welcome to the BC Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your host, Sienna Hurd, 2L at American University, Washington College of Law. Kirsten Wolford, 3L at the George Washington University Law School. Renata Mitchell, 3L at the George Washington University Law School. Elena Hoffman, 2L at the George Washington University Law School. And you're listening to Let's Brief It. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast made for law students by law students. I'm Renata Mitchell. And I'm Elena Hoffman. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about something on everybody's mind right now, the coronavirus. To learn more about this issue, we are joined today by our guest, Craig Brodsky. Craig is a partner with Goodell DeVries. He has experience defending professionals in malpractice matters, licensing proceedings, healthcare litigation, and products liability litigation. Recently, Craig was named 2020 Lawyer of the Year by the District of Columbia Defense Lawyers Association and was appointed to the association's ad hoc committee on COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Before we brief it, can you tell us about how you entered the medical malpractice area? Sure, I'd be happy to. My entry into the medical malpractice area actually came out of me wanting to continue working with certain individuals. When I first came out of law school and finished my clerkship, I joined a DC regional firm that focused on professional liability. And after six or seven years there, I had the opportunity to come to Goodell DeVries with somebody else uh, that I truly enjoyed working with. And that opportunity presented to me uh, the chance to assist the Goodell uh, Medical Malpractice Group focusing on certain types of cases and DC case law and DC cases. And so that was how I ended up. It was simply that I wanted to continue working with certain groups of people. And that sort of brought me to a focus for an extended period of time on medical malpractice cases. And then the more that I got into them, the more that I enjoyed focusing on them for an extended period of time. I like the science-based aspect to it. I very much like working with physicians, both as witnesses and experts. And I like the trial work. And it's been my experience that the medical malpractice bar is probably, if not the best group of trial lawyers, then right up there with with a group of people. I really think that the malpractice bar is the best trial group around. I'm curious, do you have a medical background? I do not have my own medical background. I do have some science background in my education. I did work as a youngster in a, in a medical office for a while, but I don't have any true uh, formal medical training. So if you don't mind, can you share with us what your personal definition of medical malpractice really is? I define medical malpractice the same way that our courts do, which essentially is that substandard care caused damage to a plaintiff. We talk about these elements the same way that we talk about the elements of a standard negligence action in terms of duty, breach, causation, and damages. In a medical malpractice case, the duty is defined as the standard of care, meaning that the conduct of the physician is judged prospectively by what is reasonable under the circumstances. Then we go to a causation element, which says once the plaintiff can establish that the standard of care was breached, then the plaintiff must establish a causal link between the care and the outcome that they claim was the harm. Do you usually deal with the same kind of uh, cases, like the same area of medicine? 
or is it kind of just anything? It's sort of a mixed bag. We do see in the medical malpractice arena a certain theme to a number of cases. So, for example, there is a subset of certain specialties which are more likely to be sued for malpractice. And we see within that a repeat type of claim. So what I mean by that is there are a handful of types of cases that are repeaters, either because of the type of law that's out there or because of the type of medicine that's out there or because of the type of harm that we're seeing. So for example, we do see repeat failure to diagnose cancer cases. We do see cases arising out of birth injury. Uh, we do see cases arising out of surgeries. So those are the kinds of cases that seem to repeat themselves. Each case does have its own unique facts and circumstances that give it some of a unique setup. But in general, we do see repeats in terms of issues. In your experience, how often do these kind of cases go to trial? So overall, it's a pretty small number of medical malpractice cases that go to trial. It's in line with other statistics, somewhere around 85 to 90 to 95% of cases settle as opposed to going to trial. The decision about whether a medical malpractice case goes to trial or not, like any other case, is a combination of decision factors that we as the lawyers make. It rises and falls on the business issues, the relative strengths of the medicine, the relative likability of each witness, and then the overall feeling about the case itself. And when uh, what we do as defense lawyers is we put all of those factors together and try to come up with a reasoned settlement value based on those different factors that are in play and then we can make a decision with our clients about whether it's a case that we're going to take to trial or whether it's a case that we want to uh, try to resolve. The plaintiff's counsel go through a similar type of analysis, and then we see at that point whether or not it is a case where a resolution is possible. So we talked about how often these kind of cases go to trial, but how common are medical malpractice suits overall? So medical malpractice cases do make up a fairly substantial portion of some states' dockets, but the overall number of claims is not really the only metric by where we evaluate the impact of medical malpractice cases. You also have to look at the costs associated with the cases, the exposure in these cases, and the amount of money that's sort of at stake. There's no question that malpractice cases do indeed take up a substantial portion of everybody's dockets. But medical malpractice cases are not a huge percentage of a docket in a court because they are so involved in terms of what happens. And the number of cases that actually get brought is substantially less than normal day-to-day -day activities because normal day-to-day -day activities, car accidents and uh, other day-to-day -day life is just more common than medical errors. I did pull some statistics for you all about some numbers that kind of make some, put what we deal with in context for everyone. And I can sort of share some of that with you and sort of you can see more of the overall impact because the overall impact of numbers of cases, in my opinion, is not the determining factor of 
what the impact that we feel as medical malpractice is. I think the impact is more on the severity of the impact as well as the um, the impact that it has on, on, on dollars and how the business of medicine, as well as what happens to the patients. So in doing some research for you, this was a patch survey that I found. In 2015, there was $4 billion awarded to malpractice victims. And the largest was $216.7 million in a Florida case related to misdiagnosis of a stroke. Average payout over the past 10 years is $309,000 and change. New York is the state that has the highest payouts. North Dakota has the lowest amount of payouts. And since 2009, $38 billion has been paid. The specialties that face the highest risk for malpractice cases are surgeons, gynecologists, radiology, and also recently urology and ENT doctors. And that's because these are the physicians who practice in areas where errors are most likely to have a severe consequence. And so that sort of is a, is a big balance when you look at these kinds of claims. And then the other data that I pulled for you that I thought would be sort of interesting, and these are surveys of physicians, is the types of cases that we end up seeing. And so the most likely types of cases are failure to diagnose or delayed diagnosis, complications from surgery, poor outcome, and a failure to treat or delayed treatment seem to be the largest types of cases that we see. That's really interesting. And just curious about your opinion, why do you think North Dakota, was it you said, has the lowest payout? You know, I'm not an expert on North Dakota law, but I would venture to say, number one, it's a population base. Smaller populations are less likely to have higher payouts. And I think that's probably where it is. Uh, the second thing is that when you're in urban centers and you have higher dollars that are at stake, you have people who earn more money, it's just more things happen. And so I would venture to say that that would probably be a pretty good reason as well. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Do you know if in countries with more public health care as opposed to privatized health care, there are more or less malpractice suits? In my reading, what I have seen is there are less, less in the public sector. Okay. And why that is depends upon the setup in each system. Those countries that have a single payer system also seem to have protections in place for medical malpractice that allow a public-based system to flourish. So Canada, for example, has caps. Every doctor in Canada pays into a group policy and then Canada has caps that limit exposure as part of being part of that single-payer system. England has a similar type of setup, but they have to balance the same issues that we're facing. You know, there, there's some literature out there on England's National Health Service and some of the struggles that the NHS is having to remain financially solvent in view of uh, liability concerns. And that's a balance that every system is going to have. But ultimately, it's really about whether or not that system is set up for protecting or having caps or liability protections on the defense side 
which operate as a disincentive for filing medical malpractice cases. What do you think is the biggest misconception about medical malpractice law, either in countries with privatized or public health care? I think the biggest misconception is people believe that a bad outcome means that there was malpractice. And so what we deal with, and DC has a jury instruction specifically on this called bad results. The overall concept of medical malpractice is just because something untoward happened or there was a bad outcome doesn't mean that there was negligence and a right to recovery. And that's the causation element that we had talked about before. And that is a heavily, heavily litigated issue all the time. And I can give you some examples of those types of cases if you'd like. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Sure, so an easy example is when you have a bad outcome from a surgery or you have a failure to diagnose type of a case. So in a bad outcome for a surgery case, when surgeons operate on your abdomen, if you need your gallbladder taken out or something of that nature, there are risks associated with the surgery. We've all learned in law school about informed consent law. And sometimes a surgeon can injure, you know, you can cut a bile duct or there can be a perforated bowel or a perforated bladder during a surgery that just happens. And those are just simply risks of the surgery. And so just because that happens doesn't necessarily mean that the surgeon made a mistake during the surgery. Another example of a bad outcome not necessarily being the result of malpractice is a failure to diagnose cancer case. So some kinds of cancer are very invasive and are extremely deadly. Pancreatic cancer, for example, lung cancer, for example. So just because a patient wasn't diagnosed with cancer at the very earliest opportunity doesn't mean that the failure to diagnose is the reason that the patient couldn't be cured. Do you also think that for when physicians try experimental trials, those types of cases, how do you differentiate between um, negligence and you know, trying something new for the first time? Of course, it's not going to be perfect. So are those claims common or do you see um, negligence happening when experimental treatments are taking place or is the informed consent kind of there to insulate a physician from uh, negligence claims in that context? The informed consent is there and that clinical trials and experimental treatments are heavily regulated by the federal government. And so that's a different kind of an issue altogether because you, you have immunity issues that are out there. And that's actually a good segue. I know you wanted to talk about some, co some COVID related and that's a good segue into COVID because one of the things that we're gonna see in COVID litigation is immunities for certain choices in treatment. And that's a heavily discussed issue both at a state and a federal level. Yeah, since this is actually a perfect segue, I was curious to see how COVID has impacted medical malpractice liability and wanted to get your views on, on that. So we're a little bit behind the times. Things that happen in malpractice cases are events that usually happen one to three years before the lawsuit gets filed. So we haven't yet seen in the actual filing of a malpractice case the impact of COVID. We anticipate that there will be cases 
that deal with facilities infection controls, treatments of COVID, and things like that, which might be a basis for a malpractice case in the future. The bigger issue that healthcare clients are facing right now is how do you navigate the various treatments and choices that you have to make and the various rules put in place by state and federal governments to make sure that you're providing fair care to everyone in your community. Right, and that, and that kind of leads to the next question where we've definitely seen some inequities and in social determinants of health that put racial and ethnic minority groups at increased risk of getting sick from COVID, including discrimination and just healthcare access. In your practice, have you come across a case in, in which racial discrimination plays a real role in the malpractice? I have not personally had to deal with racial discrimination in a specific malpractice case. The bigger issue that I'm seeing is it's an access to care issue. And from right. our perspective, with our healthcare clients, they are really invested in the health of their own community. And we see this uh, in terms of the investment in places in the city for COVID testing and ancillary hospitals that were set up. Uh, University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins worked together to put a field hospital together in Baltimore. And so from my perspective, we are really seeing our clients really are invested in access to care for the underprivileged community. How can we in the legal profession combat these types of inequities despite not being members of the medical profession? You know, that's a multi-layered and challenging question. And the biggest way that we can do it, in my opinion, at least those of us on the defense side or those of us that work with healthcare clients, is to continue to push access to care as a critical piece of healthcare systems overall plan in the community. And so we see our clients pushing access to care by having clinics available, and it's, it's an allocation of resource issue, and we're asked to provide those help to our clients so that they can provide care to patients. You know, the business of medicine is complex, and we do advise clients on access to care issues. We know, for example, Johns Hopkins, you know, we can go on the Johns Hopkins website and see all the COVID statistics on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's a way that Johns Hopkins is getting information out to our communities. And so what we do as well is we work with our clients on community initiatives, right? So we can in foundation events that are fundraisers. We can work with our clients on assistance setting up community initiatives. And those are the ways that we can partner with our clients to help provide access of care to those who are the most underprivileged persons in our community. Right, that definitely makes sense with access to care because as we've seen, COVID has not just made these issues apparent for the first time, it's only amplified these issues that have already existed. So it definitely, I agree that access to care is kind of the root problem here. So everything we've talked about today has been really interesting, but we do have to wrap it up. At this point, we wanna talk about law students since this podcast is created specifically for law students. Do you have any advice for them or any classes or internships that they should take if they are interested in practicing medical malpractice law? 
part of being able to get into a medical malpractice type of work is not just knowing the lawyers who do it, but it's actually being invested in your clients and knowing how medicine operates. So what I would recommend to somebody who really wants to get into the medical malpractice law is make yourself familiar with the, the field, be able to talk healthcare with your clients, try to get into or make contacts in the healthcare industry itself so that you can actually speak and understand the language of medicine. Because that ultimately is how we provide advice to our clients is we have to be able to speak and understand not just law, but medicine. And so I would spend time focusing on the medicine side of it. Everybody learns the law side of it. But to me, spending some time and investing yourself, investing time in the medical side of it is probably a good way to be able to present that you are someone who is invested in this type of a practice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. And thank you to the DC Bar for hosting us. We had a great time. Thanks so much for having me.